how do you describe God? How do you do that? In reality, we can't fully do it. Because to fully describe God, you would have to fully understand God, in which case you would be God. Now we can try, and the fact that we can't fully do it, especially just in one conversation, shouldn't stop us from trying to describe God or describe attributes of God. And of course we want to. We want to do our best to speak of Him and to describe Him and talk about Him and praise Him. Sometimes we use what what people like to call those omni-words, that God is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent, omnibenevolent, and all those things. That's wonderful to talk about His attributes and how He is fully all those things. He is all-powerful, all-knowing. He is everywhere. He is all-benevolent or all-good. Sometimes we just talk about His attributes using language we know a little better, but we make sure we try to include things like He's perfect in all of those things. He is perfect in love. His perfect justice. His perfect mercy. And so many other attributes. But the fact of the matter is, we can't fully do it. But just because it can't be perfectly done, should not cause us to stop trying. Because the more we seek to understand the attributes of God and who God God is, the more in awe of Him we will be and the more in love with Him we will be because of how amazing He truly is. I want you to open your Bibles tonight to Psalm 113, the 113th Psalm. Because in this quest, if you will, we have to try to understand and speak of God, describe God, I want to use this poem tonight that's a call to praise, but in between it, those calls to praise, it speaks of some of the attributes of God. Psalm 113 begins and ends with a call to praise the Lord. We'll read the poem in just a moment. But sandwiched between those calls to praise are reasons why we should do that, every one of which should cause us to be more amazed at God. We're calling our lesson tonight, There Is No One Like Our God which is a play on the question that's asked in verse 5 of the poem, Who is like the Lord our God? And I hope tonight that by reading and studying the poem, we're seeking above all else, really, to be more amazed by Him and more in awe of Him. Let's read the poem. Psalm 113, beginning in verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust, and lifts the needy from the ash heap, to make them sit with princes, with the princes of His people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children, Praise the Lord. Now before we dive into a couple of points about the poem, notice just something by way of introduction. It's really found at that beginning and that end, the call to praise. Notice just a few things. First of all, just this idea of praise. The word is found three times in verse 1, and of course it's also how the poem ends at the end of verse 9. Sometimes we talk about that word in the Old Testament, we take the time to talk about what it means because the Hebrew word is translated praise as a word that could also mean to shine or to, to be clear, as in a, a clear sound. The idea behind that word praise is it's something that just sort of 
comes out, just sort of flashes out, and it can't be missed. And so when we're offering praise to God, the picture behind that is that we're stating something or saying something that is just simply so clear that it cannot be missed. And obviously the one to be praised is the Lord. Eight times in this poem. And again, it's just nine verses long. But eight times you have that name or that title, Lord. The word Jehovah or Yahweh. It's the word that basically means the self-existing one. God is because God is. And because of that, we should be in awe of Him, and that alone makes Him worthy of praise, that He is simply because He is. But one more observation you have on the screens by way of introducing the poem is how verse 1 ends. Praise the name of the Lord. We sing that in a few of our songs also. We don't talk that way very often, though, in just our common language. But to the Jewish mind, the ones who originally have read this poem, to speak of the name of someone was to speak of that person's entire being. In this case, not a person, but God's entire being. And so to praise the name of the Lord then is a statement that that calls us or challenges us to praise all that God is. There can be absolutely nothing. There can be no attribute. There can be no character trait that we should avoid praising as we try to praise God the totality, if you will, of who God is, of all the attributes that He holds perfectly within His self-existing being, that is what we are to shine forth clearly to the Lord. That's what it means when the Bible tells us to praise the name of the Lord. Now, with that as the introduction and conclusion to the poem, the meat, if you will, of the poem, in between those calls, gives us two reasons why we should do that first of all, is the glory of Jehovah. And just to drive home the point of how glorious and how majestic God is, the psalmist seems to to talk about the glory of God from two different directions, or if you want to think of a different way, two different perspectives. First is what we might call linear glory. Because in verses 2 and 3, the poet causes us to think sort of about, about things that we know as far as time and space, and how God is to be praised across all of those things. Verse 2 begins by pronouncing a blessing on the name of Jehovah. And I find it interesting that when you read in the Old Testament of people praising God, or even people praising, or excuse me, people blessing God, or people blessing each other, it's a word that, yes, is a statement of praise, but it's really a word that means to kneel before someone. It's a statement of submission. God's name is worthy, if you will, of being kneeled before because He is so great and mighty and glorious. But the poet here says that is true from this time forth and forevermore. Now, we could look at that just and get really, really deep with it and say even that doesn't get to it because God's name was worthy of being blessed before the poem was ever written. But from the poet's perspective and from us, our perspective from reading it, what he is basically saying is, from this moment, from the time I see this attribute of God, the time I think of God, from this time forth and forevermore, I should be kneeling before God in praise. It is linear, if you will. It's sort of like a timeline. Starting from now, however far out forevermore is, that's how long I should praise God. And by the way, the word that's translated forevermore, you could actually translate is for as long as there is an ever. 
which is kind of forever, which is long as there is an ever. In math class, we teach children that numbers are basically infinite. If, if it were possible, you could start counting at one and just keep counting, just always adding one. You've known that kid before. I can count to a thousand. And you're like, oh, no. Because then they'll prove to you they can count to a thousand. And at about 43, you're done, and they've got a long way to go. But it would take you a while just to keep counting and counting and counting. A man in Birmingham, Alabama, decided in 2007 he was going to see just how long it takes to count to a million. And so he turned on webcams and just started counting. One, two, as, as quickly as he could. He allowed himself time to rest. He allowed himself time to eat. But other than that, while he was awake, he just counted. And he had one dramatic pause between 999,999. And he kind of stood there for a second dramatically and then said one million. And he finally reached one million after 89 days of counting. To which I say, he needs a life. By the way, if you were to try to count to a billion, not a million, you would need to average saying one number every single second with no stopping for over 32 years. That's the way we're thinking of praising God in this poem. Looking out before us, there is never a moment before us where we should not be kneeling our hearts before Him. And that will last as long as there is an ever But maybe the picture we can more easily grasp is the next one found in verse 3. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And again, you can follow that, as it were, in a linear way across the sky. We see the sun come up in the morning. We watch it move across the sky. Of course, we know it's not really moving. We understand all of that. But from our perspective, it is. We see it move across the sky. And finally, at the end of the day, we see it setting and going across the horizon. And the psalmist says that should be a picture of how we praise God. And by the way, don't forget, the sun comes up and the sun sets every single day. And so this is also a call for continuous praise to God. So there is a a linear glory of God. But then also, you have a vertical glory of God. Verses 4-6 through use the very common tactic of placing God in, in, in the mind's eye far above people to show His majesty and to show His power. And of course, that's not to say that God is actually only out there, quote-unquote, somewhere. Scripture makes it clear that God is everywhere all the time, including right near us. He is a very present help, uh, very present help in time of trouble. Psalm 46 and verse 1. Paul would say on Mars Hill that God is not far from each or every one of us. Acts 17 and verse 27. When we think about, though, God being, as it were, out there, above us, it helps to build up a deep awe in Him. And so He is often pictured as being above us, as looking down on humanity, not in a critical sense, but in the sense of just seeing over all of it and being able to to know and see everything that's going on all the time. But notice also these verses picture God as being high above all nations. That's a powerful statement in the Old Testament. Not just God is over the Jewish nation, or God is over the Israelites. God is over all nations, Jew and Gentile or Jew and pagan alike. And so His glory is said to be above the heavens. There are some commentators, and I tend to agree with them, who suggest that the reason you have that wording here, that God's glory is above the heavens, 
It's because so many ancient peoples and some people in our world today worship things in the heavens. They worship the sun. They worship the moon. They worship the stars. They worship constellations. They, they, they think that th- those are what sort of moves the universe and they're worthy of worship. But if God is above the heavens, He's above anything that people have thought about to worship. He's far beyond even that. And so then verses 5 and 6 summarize this picture of the glory of God with the question, Who is like the Lord our God? And then it pictures Him, notice it, seated on high. Why is He seated? Because He's on His throne. That's where judges judge. That's where rulers rule from. Is seated on a throne. They are in charge. They are making judgments. And with all that in mind, then we're reminded of the extent of the rule of God. To put it in terms we can understand, the poet pictures God as looking far down on the heavens and on the earth. Some of you may have traveled to other parts of the world where there are old, old castles, maybe Europe or elsewhere. Often, not always, but often those castles sit on higher ground than the ground than the land around. And even if they don't, very often the throne within the castle was for sure elevated above just the stone floor or whatever it happened to be within the castle. And the reason was very simple. This person is above. This person is higher. This is the one in charge. God is pictured here as being so far elevated that His rule is over everything. Over the heavens, over the earth, because that's how glorious He is. That's how much He rules over. He rules over everything. When we think of God, Is that the concept we have of Him? When we sing words, as we did tonight from holy, 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 that God is over all and blessed eternally, do we really seek to grasp what that actually means? He is so glorious that we can't really put it into words except to say He's over everything. But with that concept, hopefully sort of leaving our heads spinning a little bit about how amazing and awesome and glorious God is, the poet then seems to shift gears a little bit and speaks of the grace of Jehovah. Even though God is high above, He's pictured as ruling, the poet makes sure to show us that the judgments or the rulings of God, the workings of God are truly just that He is gracious, that He is merciful in everything that He does, and to do that He gives us again Two pictures, both of which deal with vulnerable people within that society and how God aids them and lifts them up. Picture number one is the picture of the poor and the needy. And that concept, of course, finds a very long history in the Old Testament. In fact, the mother of Samuel, Hannah, prayed very similar words to what you see in this poem. Way back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, part of her prayer was this. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. You hear echoes of that in this poem, no telling how many years later when this poem was written. And the same picture is used here, not to say, not just to say that God helps the poor, but that God has risen the poor and needy people to positions that would be unthinkable without His grace. In fact, verse 8 tells us that God makes the poor and needy to sit with princes. Now, we need to keep in mind, this is poetry. 
So the point here is not to say that God literally takes poor people and puts them in a physical royal family all the time. That's not the point. But there were times, whether or not, throughout Old Testament history where God did exactly that. And they're scattered almost like, almost like salt and pepper all through the Old Testament. Think of Joseph in Egypt. Think of David in Israel. Think of Daniel in Babylon. Think of Mordecai in Persia. And there are others. And of course, forward-looking, think of Jesus, who was so poor that He had nowhere even to lay His head, and yet who was King of kings and Lord of lords. And so these words are meant to show the grace of God to those who are, if you please, downtrodden. Even though He rules, God rules over all things, He doesn't overlook the poor. He doesn't overlook the needy. He lifts them to places that are impossible within just the realm of the world. But the second picture is one that may be more tender and more poignant as it shows God caring for the woman who is unable to have children and now is able to do just that. And it might be, this is just for your own thinking, it might be of some significance that those previous verses seemingly echo back to Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2, since she is obviously one of those faithful women in Scripture who longed for a child and then was blessed by the Lord to have that son, Samuel. But others in Scripture do the exact same thing. Sarai, better known to us as Sarah. Rebecca, Leah, Rachel. Samson, the judge, was born to an unnamed woman who longed for a child. The prophet Elisha was used by God to tell a woman from the land of Shunem that she would have a child, and she did. Now again, this is not promising every woman who longs for a child that she will have that child. The point is simply to say that God has done amazing things, and that God knows, and that has been seen in the past because He is gracious. It's also to tell us that not even the birth of the child, or really more specifically, not even the tears of the woman longing for the child escape the view of God. Can you think of any earthly leader with that much grace? Now we could sit here and maybe pass around a piece of paper and say, can you, can you name a, a world leader or a leader in some capacity who cares for his subjects or his, the people who are under his jurisdiction? We can make a list that includes some, some amazing people in our, our, our nation or our history or whatever. Sure, we, would, we could find some. Go, that, that was a, a great leader in a lot of ways. That was someone who seemed to care for people in a lot of ways. I'm not trying to downplay that at all. But zero, zero earthly leaders could ever do that perfectly the way God does for all people at all times. He sees every tear. He knows every person. He hears every request and gives each one an honest and just hearing. He rules, yes, as He sees fit but also in a way that is always glorious and good in the ultimate scheme of things, even if I cannot and do not understand it in the moment, because He is a God of glory, yes, but also a God of grace. And with that, the poet then just seems to jump quickly to the ending. There's not really sort of a, a decline, if you will, in the poem. There's not anything you start feel like things are sort, starting to let up and we're going to get a little smoother and coming in for a smooth landing. There are all these wonderful things that God has done and God is able to do, and all of a sudden, you just have the words again, praise the Lord. In fact, one commentator said that he had read some other writers who said Psalm 113 has a weak ending. I didn't know any part of the Bible had a weak ending or beginning or middle for that matter. 
But the idea was that this poem doesn't flow right. To anyone who thinks that way, they've missed the point of the entire poem. Any way you look at God, whether it's His majesty and His glory, or whether it's His graciousness towards people, any way you look at God should be a call to praise Him. And so it's as if the poet just can't wait to write that again and to make that call for us or that command for us to praise again. Here is one who, yes, is overall, and yet he cares for something as in, intimate and personal as the tears of a barren woman. And so with those verses in mind, let's go back to how we started. How do you describe God? Well, in nine verses, we haven't done it. But we've been given a pretty good place to start. But we can start with His majesty, His glory. We can start with His grace, His gracious actions. But maybe the words of a song that we sometimes sing express it best. That we consider the one we're trying to describe, we're really left speechless. And maybe that's not a bad thing either. So sometimes we sing, you are beautiful beyond description. Too marvelous for words. Too wonderful for comprehension. Like nothing ever seen or heard. Who can grasp your infinite wisdom? Who can fathom the depths of your love? You are beautiful beyond description. Majesty enthroned above. Holy God to whom all praise is due. I stand in awe of you. You know, try as we might, we would struggle to top that. Because when we really stop and think about the fact that, yes, we, we can give all these descriptions of God and we should. We, we can seek words to, to give the traits of God and we should. And God has revealed so much in His Word of how to do that. And sometimes those who write those big, thick books that gather dust on our shelves try to give us fancier words to describe God. That's good. We should do the very best we can. But in reality, when we st step back and see the glory and the grace of God, sometimes the best response is just to stand in awe of Him and not say a word. Because there is no one like our God. He is glorious. But He's gracious enough to allow us to be His children. The one we cannot describe only wants us to come home with Him. There's no one like our God. If you're not on the path to going home with Him, will you come? Always say and sing to encourage you.